Hey everyone, this is Matt Shedd, and before we start this special episode that focuses on our professionals program, we just wanted to let you know about a brand new booklet that we put out here at Mar Recovery Resources called Addressing Addiction in the Workplace by Jim Seckman. Thanks to funding from Greystone Power Foundation and the Waffle House Foundation, we're able to distribute a limited number of complimentary copies of this booklet. To give you an idea of what it is, it helps employers and supervisors see the possible signs of addiction in their employees and provides them with some guidance about how to proceed so that they can be part of the solution rather than the problem. And if you want to get your complimentary copy, all you have to do is visit marinc.org, M-A-R-R-I-N-C.org. Go to resources at the top of the page and select store from the drop-down menu. And once you've selected addressing addiction in the workplace from our store, just apply the promo code workplace, all one word. Welcome to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Today we have a special episode focusing on our professionals program here at Mar. Lane came to Mar after facing dramatic consequences in his career as a dentist, and today he'll talk about what his treatment looked like and how he was able to eventually return to work as a dentist. We'll also hear from Rick McCain and Doug Brush as they talk about the details of the professionals program and how they frequently see clients return to their careers after getting help. But to start off, we're going to hear Lane tell a short version of his story and the circumstances under which he entered into Mar. What was going on for you when you got here to Mar? Wow, that's a that's a good question. It's hard for me to look back at at these things because I was I, I I say it. I have a tendency to be pretty delusional. So, so I had been previously. I'd been to about. I'd been to five different detoxes for five different opiates. So I kept trying to to tweak it. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I can't do this one. Let's try this one. And I just kept ending up in the same place, right? And by the time I got here, I knew something had to be up. Um, something was going wrong, and I kept ending up. Um, I kept ending up in absolute misery. By the end of it, I was just really sad. I was crying each night. I was... I was telling my wife the other night, every night I would put, like, I'd have this thing by, I was sleeping on a couch at one point um, in my own house, right, with bedrooms and beds, but I was sleeping on the couch because I felt lonely. Um, And I had, like, a rag with ice, and I would ice my neck, and that was the only way I could go to sleep because I was just constantly hot, and I was just overflooded with emotions that I didn't know what to do with them besides use to, to change the way I felt, so... I have plenty of those stories and I keep, the longer I stay sober, the more I remember like of, Oh my gosh, I'll see something or smell something. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I remember that. And it was absolutely awful, but I forgot about it. Um, and so how I end up here, I was mandated and I went to another treatment center before for 28 days. It was by the beach. Real nice. I picked it up myself. (laughs) Didn't work. Um, and then I uh, went to an outpatient after that, um, which was, was kind of cool. They put all this stuff on my head, you know, and did this like neuropsych stuff and like <laughs> didn't work either. So, uh, so I ended up here and I was, I was going to stay for 90 days and then go back and, uh, live with my parents again. You know, I had like, I went to school forever 
and pretty much it just I absolutely blew everything. I lost everything. What I was doing is I got in trouble for drug diversion. So I was practicing as a dentist. And right when I got out of dental school, I decided, hey, what I'll do is I'll get sober again. I'll go to detox. That was what sobriety was to me, go to detox again. Never been to treatment uh, at that point. So I went to another detox, got out, and then I decided, hey, I'm going to move four hours away. Like way down to South Georgia, there'll be no drugs there. Uh, um, so that's what I did. And then I got my DEA number a couple days later, and I was like, oh, well, I'll just I'll just prescribe a few because I'm feeling bad. Mm-hmm. All right. And this is all before Mar. This so? is all before Mar, yeah. and everything at that point. Um, I started writing a lot of prescriptions. It was it was planned on every time. It was planned on just one day, one more day of doing it. But it just kept going and going and going every day until I'd used every pharmacy in the whole city in the town, and then I had to start doing it multiple, multiple times. And then the police came into my office that I was working at, and six police officers took me outside and. Um, Checked me right on the curb in front of the whole town, searched me, everything, and um, I got Six arrested. police officers. That's right. That's right. I expect that when you're sitting in your office and they come and somebody wants to see you and boom, they get you. And you're working out of practice with other dentists? Yes, and, and patients. Everybody in there. Big practice, yeah. It's pretty shameful. Pretty shameful at that point. So at that point, I still wasn't... I still wasn't down and out. I still, I went to a treatment and then another one. And um, basically that caught, that caught up with me. I was trying to find a way out. And we talk about this sometimes. And we had a great group a few years ago where everybody there who had been sober a little bit of time, we talked and we came to the conclusion that, you know, we got sober when we were pretty sick and tired, uh, feeling the way we were feeling, and we were out of options. We had all were looking and we're like, we were just out of moves. We didn't have that aunt or that uncle or that somebody that was going to save us, that little bit of money that was going to save us. We were out. And when I got to more, I was out of moves. I was done. The the gig was up. So it wasn't that I came in here thinking, hey, I'm going to be the spiritual guy and 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 get sober. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew I kept ended up and I may as well give something else a shot. Um. So both of the, you needed both of those things to be sick and tired and out of options. Yeah, for me. Yeah. For me, I did. And so then that's when the kind of journey started, and I stayed here for a while, almost two years. So what was it? Was it that you got in trouble again after, and, and then that uh, per, and then the so board that, sent you to Mar? Or correct. How? So that one caught up with me. So that one from a long time ago, they basically – the police department basically ripped up the charges on me and said, go get help. Like, you're sick. Go get help. But they, I didn't think they reported it, so I thought I could get away with it. So I actually went to work at another office and then got in trouble for the same thing at that office. And then basically everything came crashing down. And then so the you get a phone call from the dentistry board or something like that and they say you got to go to mar or how did how all that I don't go to- i don't even honestly i don't remember it all i know is the board contacted i had some kind of lawyer at the time and the board contacted them and said the georgia drug enforcement agency is looking into you and basically you need to surrender your license and go to treatment 
And so I called somebody named, I guess I could say it, her name is Jane Walters, and she runs the Georgia Dental Recovery Network. I called her, and she kind of told me to go to Mar. That mm-hmm. would be a good option. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I ended up at Mar. So then what are you thinking your first day walking into Mar? I don't remember. Uh, all, all I really remember, Ashley McQueen said something to me about what is a nice guy like you doing in a place like this, this, this move. I was like, what is this guy talking about, mm-hmm. number one? I, I don't, this guy's driving me from Peachford. I, oh, I remember this. I did think about, so you know, Mar didn't allow me to go get my truck and drive from Peachford to Mar because my plan was to go to a shop in Marietta and get some Kratom mm. and then come to Mar. Like, that would stave off the withdrawals, but they didn't allow me to do that. And so that was a good move. Yeah, Not for me at the time, but for Mar. It was a good, <laughs> real good move. It's a good move. They, they, one step ahead. Yeah, right? they, got yeah, yeah. they got me. So I don't know. I, I came in, I was um, pretty delusional, uh, pretty angry, pretty angry. Um, and I really just wanted to... I really was very curious about why I kept on ending up in the same place. Was there kind of like a suspicion, like I've already kind of done the, I've done treatment before, this probably isn't going to work, or was there some openness to maybe this will work this time? Or I don't know. I don't think there was definitely openness. For me, it was more, I was sad, okay? So I wanted some kind of solution, but it also intrigued me that everybody, when I was talking, everybody talked about their emotions. Mm. Um, It intrigued me because I thought they were all lying. That's the truth. I didn't think people, I remember asking Matt Irwin in our first group, because he was telling me a story about some guy he got in an argument with, and the guy came up to him and he said, you're intimidating me right now. And I was like, nobody says that. (laughs) Who would say that? That that is ludicrous. And I said, like, do people really talk like this? Because I don't buy it. And he's like, yes, they do. And I was like, okay. Well, maybe I'll try that. So it piqued your interest. It yeah. absolutely piqued yeah. my interest. Okay. And so do you guys remember Lane coming in those first days? Here's Rick McCain, the professional liaison at our men's center. I know that uh, Doug talked about him coming in and staffing in the morning, and he was always likes to know if someone plays sports, right? So Doug says he's a – did you play catcher? No. Yeah. But you, but you, when you slid into base, like mm-hmm. some base, your cleats were up, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what Doug would say. Yeah, he's a cleats up kind of guy. So then we were all kind of, oh, so he's really angry. <laughs> that's kind of how we, like, first. That's when I first heard about him. So, but I didn't really have much contact that first phase, you know, not until you got mm-hmm. the mirror image phase. So now we'll hear from Doug Brush, the director of our men's center, who also does a lot of work with professionals. Yeah, you know, what I remember was that Lane was just very toxic, um, um, very impaired and lost and really was seeking or searching for something, an answer that would change his life, but he didn't know what that was. Can you unpack those terms a little bit, like toxic and impaired? Like, what do you mean by by that? Well, the disease of addiction really impairs the thinking process, uh, the... Um, connectivity to people, the isolation, they're always trying to stay ahead of the disease by whatever means. 
so it creates a real unrealness, unreality in your life by just trying to stay ahead of that instead of getting to a point of of uh, desperation to begin the process of treatment and recovery. And I do remember Lane was desperate when he got to Mar. And when he talks about being out of um, options and just feeling completely broken, that's where Lane was when he came in. Didn't know what to do about it, but he knew he was there. And we could recognize that in Lane. Mm-hmm. And does that give you hope when you see somebody coming absolutely. in? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You, we can do something with this guy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What, and what did you mean by toxic? What's that? When you're using a, a lot of drugs and surviving uh, out there, professionals or non-professionals, there's a just an inability, uh, a potency to the disease that we're seeing more and more of that creates just a toxic uh, relationship with self and with others and with any any concept or, or belief or hope that things can change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Lane had that. Mm-hmm. So he came in willing, even though he came in angry and not really knowing what to do or how to do, he came in willing to consider something else, something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After all his trials and attempts in the past, to maybe not get sober, but to try to fix or solve his dilemma, which is Lane mm-hmm. and his disease. I see you nodding over there, Lane. Mm-hmm. That was the problem all along. I just didn't see it. Yeah. It was me. There's an essence of me that I knew that I was manipulating everything. I I, I knew it. Um and there was a part of me that, if, to a certain point, I was very sick for a long time that I was okay with it. But I was pretty okay with it. And, like, I was going to get whatever I needed to get and what I wanted to do, and I was willing to pull any kind of strings. It's just I kept creating huge fires mm-hmm. and having to put them out and then move on to the next thing and just burning down everything. Seems like at the beginning, too, you weren't clear you wanted to go back to dentistry. I think a lot. See, I think a lot of medical professionals do that, and that's yeah. why I always warn people in any kind of group, mm-hmm. like the ARP group, about thinking that the job was the problem. Because for right. me, it was not the problem. I didn't know if I wanted to do dentistry. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I thought dentistry and the stress was part of the problem. But it, it was not even close. Because I can practice dentistry now. Yeah, there are little stresses, but it's a lot of fun. And it's awesome. You get to help people. And it was me. I was bringing the stress to the job, you know. And I think a lot of medical professors make that mistake early on where I can't go back to this job. I can't be an ER doc anymore. I can't be a dentist anymore because of the stresses and the schedule. But you have power over that, right? You have power over your schedule, but you're the issue. It's not the job. (laughs) And has that has that been your experience, Rick, over the years that you've seen people with other, with other people? Yeah, they come in thinking I can't do this ever again. That's pretty common, I think, mm-hmm. in the first phase, because in their mind, there's no way they could go back and do that and stay clean or stay sober. Mm-hmm. It's just it's impossible. I, I just you know, many of them say, "Well, I'm just going to have to get into a, a different field, or I'm going to have to do something different, or get out of being an ER doc or something," you know. But um, I think what you said a while ago was true, too. It's like the layers that, that get peeled away before you finally have to address the issue. Usually the job's the last thing to go. 
So if you got the job and you haven't gotten fired yet, it's like, maybe it's not that bad. You know, maybe I can figure out another way to kind of do both, do my job and still do what I want to do to change the way I feel. So I think that's very common, Mm -hmm. that part of it. And we encourage our professionals to get sober a while first before they ask that question. Can I work in my profession again Mm -hmm. in recovery? Because they really don't know until they experience lasting recovery and and sanity and spirituality is a component to beginning to ask different questions. Because mm. when you're coming out of a disease and you've been practicing as a professional in your disease, it feels almost impossible to go back into that profession uh, until you experience recovery for a while. And to Rick's point, the reason we have a professional's program uh, is to confront that um concept that as long as I have my profession, everything is okay. Because professionals will let go of everything else first. Families, uh, spouses, marriages, friends, uh, long before they uh, surrender their disease to their profession. Uh, as long as I got that, for some reason, I'm okay. And that's the the uh, challenge in our professional program is confronting that and challenging our professionals to break through their denial that no, things weren't okay. Uh, you were still isolated and alone in your disease. You just happened to still have a professional job that was telling you something different, feeding your ego, making it okay, telling you it really isn't that bad as long as I have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's part of the breaking through the denial process in our professionals program is helping our professionals look at how toxic and how isolated and how um, chronic their disease has become and progressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does any of that resonate with you, Lane? Any thoughts on – was that your experience, I guess, is what I'm asking, of like the, the job kind of being the last thing? Like if I have this, then – Sure. Absolutely it was. It was um... – I think my plan, honestly, it was quite a crazy plan, but it, I thought the job enabled me to make enough money. There was a there are multiple parts to it, right? I, you enjoy the approval, right, and the status of the job. That's that's a wonderful thing, or at least you feel you're totally in the ego. So you enjoy that part, and also monetarily, you enjoy that because you think you can get away with doing drugs for a long time. I thought I could do it successfully. Until I didn't do it successfully. Absolutely. I think one of the most important parts, and I, I learned it from Dave Devitt, and I really do believe it. A lot of these jobs, uh, physicians and dentists, other healthcare professionals, are highly specialized jobs. Right? It's a skill. It is a skill, and that's why you went to school for a long time and invested a lot in it. And it's, it's because it's hard to do, and not many people can do it. And it's valuable in helping people. You need those jobs. So I like more because they advocate for that. They realize that about a professional is that if you can get them sober minded, you can help a lot of people. Like it's, it's an individual with a certain skill that can help a lot of people. And it works best if we can get those people back in the community to help people. You know, powerlessness and manageability are the toughest denial pieces of combating and confronting the disease. And when you're a professional who's been successful and uh, found high esteem 
uh, achievement, uh, professional status in your profession, it's very difficult to begin to look at the powerlessness and manageability of my of my disease of addiction. And that's a real struggle for a lot of professionals to break through that and to be able to come to grips with not just the powerlessness, but the unmanageability, the insanity mm-hmm. of the disease that they have to embrace and look at and, and see and accept to move into recovery. Because the job can't fix it. Mm-hmm. The co- job cannot fix that level of um, uh, spiritual malady. I, I, I was looking for freedom my entire life. That, that's what it was. Um, and I didn't know that. I didn't know that until like a few years ago, honestly, um, and everything. But I, I could never find it. And drugs were a temporary solution for me to be free. You know, talking about spiritually and physically free. Yeah. Right. Um, but it was like it took that away and it ended up costing me even more. Um, and so what I enjoyed seeing is people that I perceived to be free. That's what that's when I saw people who had been sober for a long time and were joyous and it looked like they had things that they liked. And I wasn't, and I'm t- talking about material things, like things that brought them joy. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that made me hopeful that maybe I could be free too one day. And uh, somebody told me to pick a sponsor who like absolutely has what you want. That was the best advice I got. Mm-hmm. Not one that has a certain amount of time or something that you can see on them that you want. Mm-hmm. That's what I did. And he showed me how to get it. You know, and I followed instructions on how to get it. So um, I think that's what I, I valued the most is I, I wanted a path. I didn't have any any clue what spirituality meant, right? I equated it with some things that were not right at the time. Um but it led me on a path to to be joyous and free. Mm-hmm. Strange as that sounds, you always hear people say that, and you're just like, "What? Are, what are they talking about?" But it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, what does that look like when Lane's here in the? So let's go through phase one. So the mm-hmm. first forty five days of treatment. What does it look like in terms of treating him as professional in that first forty five days? What? What's I guess what's different about the professional people that are professionals in the program versus people that aren't? No, nothing. Okay. So phase one. <laughs> in terms of groups, they they have well, they have, you know, Tuesday night groups in addition to uh-huh. the, if you're a non professional, you don't have professionals groups like you have on Tuesday night. So Lane was in uh, a group a peer group at five thirty and then a large group at seven. And then on Saturday morning, they all meet at 9 with a large group. All the regular other patients meet at the same time, too. So it used to be different, but so there's two additional groups in phase one that professionals get to do. But I think one of the things that makes Mar not unique but different is we believe in mixing professionals and non-professionals together in the communities so they can move past their differences and find their commonness with each other. So. We don't believe in an elitist program, a professionals-only program. We believe in a program where men can find their common ground, commonness uh, with each other as they um, seek a new way of living. Mm-hmm. So Lane was a community member first, just happened to be a dentist that was in treatment for, an, for a very serious addiction. Uh, so he got to do both. He got to address the fears and challenges around his profession, but also to become 
a part of a therapeutic community that worked together at finding hope and healing for mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah. Was that was that important for you being kind of mixed in with absolutely. People? Yes, absolutely. I uh, I lived with a lot of the guys who weren't really professionals for I don't know a good three years, three or four years. Um, and so I, I liked the mix. Uh-huh. I did like the mix. When we were here, we had I don't know if we had any dentists, but we had a lot of young physicians. It was an interesting group. Um, and older physicians as well. And everybody got along great. And it, meant, it didn't matter whether you were a physician, dentist, pilot. No, it's everybody just molded together. Mm-hmm. And it almost, but it just made it a lot of fun. And those like little boundaries or those social boundaries he had just kind of faded away. Hey, everyone. Just a reminder to go grab your copy of Addressing Addiction in the Workplace by Jim Seckman while we still have free copies available. The booklet is a how-to guide for employers and supervisors, guiding them through recognizing and addressing addiction with their employees. If you want to get a free copy, all you have to do is visit marinc.org, go to resources at the top of the page, select store from the drop-down menu, and once you've selected addressing addiction in the workplace, apply the promo code WORKPLACE, all one word. Now, back to the interview. Do you remember that group in that in phase one that Rick's talking about, that extra group that you're doing? Would you Absolutely. say Tuesday night? Yeah. Tuesday night. Yeah. yeah. Love it. I still go to it. Okay. So what what's going on for you then during your first phase of treatment? Okay. So I would go to a that a small professionals group at 530 and then a larger professionals group at 7. And at that time, and it's still now, so we had a group primarily with dentists and physicians. And so that was really neat because it ranged, the dentist ranged from sobriety from maybe two, three years to about 10. Um, And not only did I get great advice on practicing dentistry, right? Uh, And and I'm not talking about actual manual dexterity tips. I'm Mm -hmm. talking about how to deal with people and disappointment and perfectionism, which we really, really struggle with. We really, really struggle. Oh, that's with. something unique to that profession, you uh, think? May, or, maybe it is. Yeah. Maybe it is, but it's a pretty detailed profession. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty detailed profession. We deal with really, really small uh, spaces and people a lot. So there's certain commonalities that we all struggle with. Um, so that was awesome, getting to talk to other dentists about that. And physicians. They had a lot to talk to about, uh, about dealing with patients, mm-hmm. you know? So that was a neat aspect. And then the larger group, uh, it was a mix of professionals. And that group was a little more, at that time was a little more challenging. And I'm not talking about for me, but more confrontational, which was really good. And Doug made me talk in it every week for a year because I had some beliefs Real crazy beliefs. They were awesome looking back at it. I can can still get into it. And he'd just say, why don't you talk and tell me what you think about this? Or why don't you talk? And I just would talk about a rule that I didn't like or something I didn't agree with. And then... Like a Mar rule? Sure. There were some Mar rules that I didn't like. Um, And there were some also things about sobriety and recovery I didn't like or that I didn't understand or I didn't agree with. And then I just put them out there. And so... You'll hear it time and time and again, but the important thing is we have trouble seeing ourselves, right? The truth about ourselves. And so when we're vulnerable and bring those things to the group and are honest about it and authentic about it, people can put that in front of you 
and mirror it and say, okay, this is what I see in you, and this is what you're doing, and I can, I'm not saying that you're wrong or bad for it, but and most of the time I can relate to it, but this might be your perception of the world, and this is mine, and I'm just mm-hmm. going to show you that. And so, but it's not in that nice of terms a lot of times. A lot of times it's more like, <laughs> and you're being an idiot, and I get it, but this is how I see it now. Right. Any any stories come to mind of that happening? Oh, you? man, I got a lot of them. <laughs> I got a lot. And I even have some in the small group. I had one, uh, one of the first times I knew that I could be honest. But this is not in the large group. This is in a small group with Matt Irwin. Is I went into the group, and he was talking about telling on other people um, for things like having a cell phone, credit card, doing anything. Those are big things, but any small things. I'm not okay with this, right? I'm totally against it, as a matter of fact. A, a, about telling on... On anybody else yeah, for anything, right? Ratting it's them a, out. It's right? not like we're in a place that's uh, where people like have lost everything and their lives depend on it. You can't see that yet, right? Yeah. You can't see that yet, that you're in a, in a serious place. And people have some serious consequences and people's lives are on the line. You're thinking, man, I got locked up in this place. It's all about me, right? And what I believe and what I value. And so he said, uh, we were having this conversation and I said um, that I, if somebody could come in this apartment one of my, and murder someone, and I'm not saying a word. And I really believed it. Like I was really, really, that was my mindset. That was my perception of reality. I believed that. Like I was in agreement within myself. And he just said, okay. Didn't say anything to it. Just was like, I'm not going to convince this guy. I'm not going to be able to say anything. And I said, I can say things like that. Like, I can tell you what I, how I really feel. Like, and you're not going to, like, say you're kicked out or you get these consequences or I'm going to convince you. No. you just. I was like, okay, I can say whatever I want. I'm going to tell you guys what I believe. Right. And like what I think, and I'm going to be right, but I had no idea. I'm really, I'm totally delusional. Right. So that was a cool moment in the uh, community. And then in ARP, I used to get very upset about multiple things. Um, That's the bigger group, the professionals group. But one of them was energy drinks. I was real upset about energy drinks because I didn't think there was anything in energy drinks that could be considered a drug. Right. We always joke, if you can't test for it on a five-panel drug test, it doesn't count, which is funny, right? Um, now it's funny. Which is funny now. It's just crazy. It's real crazy. Um, so I talked about I talked about those kind of things multiple times or how I didn't see anything wrong with it, and I got, I got some good rebuttals on what was wrong with it. But it wasn't until, like, those things did impact me at the time, but it was with experience and over time that I figured out, oh, this is this is not good for me. Because most of the things in my life I figure that aren't good for me, I figure it out by doing it until I burn out on it. And then figure, man, that wasn't, that wasn't real good. <laughs> oh, it wasn't real good. So, but I had a lot of, a lot of those moments. I had and a lot of those moments. Would someone would kind of, Say, because I've heard that about that group that it can be pretty intense, sure. where someone kind of gets in your face, and so somebody would do that about energy drinks or something like that. Sure, and energy drinks. You'd have rule. You'd have a cool thing, spiritual concepts. Because I, I had a very difficult time figuring out when I was doing the steps if like the good things were happening to me in my life because of a higher power or because I was doing the stuff. You know, mm-hmm. is this because of me or am I getting some grace here? Yeah, like I don't know. And it still can be perplexing, right? 
So I, you can bring up those concepts in there, and you get to hear people with a lot of time, and that's not necessarily anything about sobriety or quality of sobriety, but you get people with a lot of different perceptions and perspectives on things, um, and they can help guide you through that. And, and it might not be the answer you're looking for, just somebody relating to you. Mm-hmm. That's cool because you didn't know anybody else had that same problem, you know? That's cool that you get to see people who are asking the same questions or have struggled with the same things you're struggling with. And you lead that group, Rick, Thursday night, the big one? So now I'm doing the large group. Mm-hmm. Doug does the small group with dentists, pilots, and uh, physicians. Okay. So can you talk, I guess we'll start with Doug then. So what's kind of your goal with that group? Or maybe that's not the right way to ask yeah, the question. Yeah, there but. is a goal. Elaine described it, but the goal is to connect those professionals together to see how they do think similarly things they're afraid to bring up because it might judge them or they won't look perfect or they'll look broken. And what I believe the group is for is to help them discover each other through the group therapy process. Uh, Not necessarily talk about professional issues that happens, but to have a true connection of, of uh, imperfection, fear, um, uh, all the things that they worry about, people are going to find out about them. And if they can connect with each other in the small group and in the big group around those issues, not everybody talks in the big group, but they certainly are able to connect with whatever's being shared and look at where they are with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the honesty, integrity of the group is being willing to explore that. When I made Lane talk every morning or every week, I did that for a long time with him because he just needed to talk. He wasn't quite sure what it meant, but the more he talked, the clearer he became on his recovery and his willingness to share himself with the other, with his peers and group. And that was so valuable for Lane because it connected him. And so many professionals come from a very isolated, perfectionistic, alone um, place in their lives where their profession is the only thing they are holding on to. And so that connection is what begins the, humanness process early in recovery. And I, I, as you were talking about that too, I was just thinking, I was editing the uh, interview with Rich Beverly and Hank Dallum talking about how there's this fear of if I, like if in front of my peers, if this gets back to the wrong person that I made this mistake or did this while under the influence. And so over, overcoming that is part of it. Yeah, or even just if you really knew who I am, you wouldn't sit in this room with me. Mm-hmm. And we all have that, that fear of people knowing who we really are. Um, and that's a huge part of the freedom piece Lane was talking about, finally speaking our truth and letting people know who we truly are. After years of hiding and not being able to do that and finding something to make that go away mm-hmm. called a drug or alcohol or a behavior. And do you see in that process, like people kind of letting go of doctor or pilot or dentist as their primary identity? Is that? Absolutely. And then they can go back to doing it. And like you were describing of this is fun. I enjoy it. I get to help people rather than I need to make this work or else. Or this is who I am, and it's the only thing I know how to be is a doctor or a dentist or a pilot. I don't know really anything else about myself or or to even risk finding that out. 
so the ego is placed on this is who I am, this is what I do, and no, that's not. That's just a part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And what we try to help professionals and our other clients and our begin to connect and relate to is there's much more to us than that. Yeah, there's a humanness that if we can experience it, uh, can draw us together instead of uh, isolating us in our disease. Do you remember that kind of being part of it for you? Like if I'm not a dentist or if I'm not a good dentist or, or who am I outside of being a dentist? Does, do you remember those kind of thoughts? I do. But I was just confused about everything, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. I, I, I was just real confused about everything. Um, and I think a, a part that I didn't see is I just didn't have, at that point, I just didn't have a lot to offer anybody. I just didn't, no matter what it was in. I just didn't. I, I was very lost. And very alone. Absolutely alone. Mm-hmm. And that's a hard thing to accept too when that I can't offer people very much when you're used to kind of being the medical professional. Absolutely. The guy who helps people. Yeah, but it was it, in the end it was a it was a beautiful thing. It was a, a really beautiful thing because I was desperate. I was pretty desperate. And it was one of those things that I came to the point, yeah, I would really like to practice dentistry again. I would really like to, but if I don't, I, I had by the end of it, I had the confidence of, I don't know if you would call it confidence. I had the faith that I would be okay, whatever I did. I would love to do that, but I'll be okay. I, I'll do something else. You know, I worked at the farmer's market as the cheese guy for two years and loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. And it taught me more than any other job I'd ever had. One of the, by far, it, 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 it coincided my job really and truly coincided right with more. It taught me so much, but I was willing to look at the things it taught me, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, as you're saying... Oh, That's kind of rare, too, for a, um, a healthcare professional to be willing to do a farmer's market job. And and you did like it, and you talked about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's unusual. Most of them want to get right back to it or be in a contract where they have a, you know, a five-year aftercare plan where they have to do so many meetings, so many therapy sessions a week, so many uh, drug screens, however often they want to, they have them do it. So, you know, most of them are willing to do that, but want to get back to work as soon as possible. So for, for Lane to be willing to postpone that and not be in a hurry, I think it, it just solidified his, his life and recovery much better. And I think in addition, we haven't really talked about this, but in addition to all the stuff we're talking about in terms of the professionals group, we are real interested in having the person that's in treatment to get connected with a, a good sponsor in 12-step recovery. And and it just kind of braids together with our with treatment. I mean, without that, we, we would, would have less to offer, I think, as a treatment center. And with it, it's a great combination. And it, And it just depends on the individual how willing they are to accept that kind of help and get the kind of sponsor that really has um, a proven record, so to speak, um, you know, willing to talk with them about anything but re- make recommendations and then the person in treatment actually follow those recommendations. So that's kind of, that's a big thing too. Not everybody does it. And to varying degrees, you'll see, uh, you know, people get it, getting it quicker, that take it, take recommendations and follow through on them. 
some people drag out their recovery a long time and not, not great recovery, but stay sober. And they could have maybe done it quicker if they would have followed direction. But so I think, I think it works together. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think now is the, um, you know, when Lane comes to groups on at least the, the seven o'clock group that I sit in with him three weeks out of the month, he, uh, he is a person that offers the kind of feedback to other new people coming. And I, I kind of depend on that from him actually, you know, cause, uh, he came through a, at a time when there was a high confrontation by peers, mostly, I'd say probably more than, mm-hmm. and they would not put up with anything. And this sometimes, you know, pretty, I would say almost aggressively come after you in a group. And he was, he was able to witness that experience it, um, benefit from it, maybe sometimes survive it. And then now he's the guy that's able to confront, but I think the way you do it is different in the way uh, was not, the way it used to be done. I, I, I don't, I'm not, I haven't been in there when it was done that way, but I heard about mm-hmm. it. Right. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's changed quite a bit uh, over the years in terms of like, you know, your, your role in the group. Mm-hmm. You still get stuff, I'm sure, but you also provide stuff. And I can count on a new person coming in, Lane's going to be talking to him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's good. It's yeah. Good Rick was talking about the peer experience most people come into treatment trying to figure out what the authority the therapist want and then they work in the early part of treatment trying to give you what you want so you won't be known right mm-hmm. and the peer part of mar and in the professor program breaks through that because it's much easier early on to share your truth with a peer than it is with someone in authority the goal is to eventually get to that point uh, but very early on, one of the ways we try to keep from being known is by trying to figure out the right thing to say, the perfect thing to say, the thing that we think you want us to say. And that gets that gets confronted and, uh, and uh, challenged in the uh, peer groups mm-hmm. with the professionals on a, on a weekly basis, which is crucial to becoming willing to experience a new way of living. And is there something about other professionals that can see that Maybe a little bit more clear. What what is that? Could you guys describe that? Oh, they identify their perfection, their ego, uh, their who they are is what they do. Um, the isolation, the uh, holding on to the profession, and being broken in the, broken in the other parts of their lives. They all connect with those kind of issues that are really hard to talk about because we don't like to talk about those things or actually show those parts of our brokenness with each other but it's crucial in breaking through the ego the ego and the denial and the, and the unmanageability of the disease mm-hmm. and so to to kind of go back to when you were talking about the arp group the seven o'clock group how how do you would you contrast that from the smaller five thirty group like what's kind of the difference in terms of what the energy of the group is or the goal <laughs> Well, I, I I don't sit in on the five thirty group. Yeah. So, um, and Doug's done both. So, you know, you could probably answer that better than me. Yeah, the smaller five thirty groups are, in one way, more intimate because it's smaller and everybody has a chance to mm-hmm. share. Um, but there's also an intimacy of the large group because not, uh, not that everybody talks, but everybody is present. 
and a part of the circle and can relate to whatever the issue is that's being talked about by a person or by a group of people. So there's a community spirit to the big groups um, that is crucial to uh, professionals giving themselves permission to um, seek recovery mm-hmm. and to drop drop some of those walls and some of those um, obstacles to becoming willing. And then there's the Saturday morning, right? So is that also for people in phase one or? Saturday morning is another big group. It's for phase one, phase two, and aftercare professionals. So it's similar to the Tuesday night, seven o'clock group okay. uh, in many ways. And it's just an additional group in Saturday mornings where they can come together again and risk claiming time and claiming issue, claiming their own issues. Um, and again, um, it is terrifying for a newcomer a person in phase mm-hmm. one to risk sharing in one of the professional groups because they don't know if they're going to say it right, say it perfectly, if they're going to expose themselves. Um, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to begin to start the process of becoming vulnerable in treatment, but very terrifying. Was that your experience? Lana? Yes. The, the great thing about it is you'll come in there with a, with a plan on what you're going to say. <laughs> It might even be a plan until you get fed up with it to how you're going to sound good, right? Um, and then you'll 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 speak, and it's it's maybe it's your perception, maybe it's some awareness stuff, but it just never goes the way that you absolutely plan. That you're like, I'm going to say this, it's going to look like this, people are going to have some good feedback if I frame it this way, and it's just other people just. They come at you. And then there's a, oops, (laughs) how how did that happen? (laughs) What I will do when they come in with a planned script like that is I always ask them, I'll I'll ask a question that has nothing to do with what they're trying to talk about. So like a script, like I want to come in and talk about how I'm going to get back to work and or even like I'm doing, I'm doing this treatment and I'm, I'm, I'm excited about being here and, and I'm all in and I'm trying to convince okay. you that I want to be here and then boom. And so then what do you do when someone does that? Really? <laughs> That's exactly what you would ask. <laughs> Let me remind you that you're in a mental health institute, uh, not of your own choosing, and that you were mandated to treatment. Let's start there. And oftentimes I'll ask them over and over again to, re, to, re, to repeat or to go back and talk about what their crisis was to come into treatment. And that crisis becomes more honest every time they share it. Okay, It becomes more honest because they're getting in touch with more and more feelings about their bottom, their crisis, what got them to treatment, what made them come to treatment. And as they talk more and more about that crisis week in, week out, it becomes more honest terms of why I'm really here. Uh, and when I can get someone to a point of saying, I don't like being here, um, then maybe we have a chance mm. versus trying to convince us that they're glad to be here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you picked a 90 day program instead of a 30 day program to come to, did you? Uh, and then we go to what was the crisis that helped you make that decision? Uh, and that opens up a lot of opportunities to become vulnerable and more honest in our stories with each other in group. So sometimes when that happens, the person actually kind of talks about, um, you know, what they re- why they're really here instead of this fluff reason why they're really here. And other people that are sitting back in the group kind of watching, mm-hmm. is it safe? 
do I dare say mm-hmm. anything? Then that and and they and that person survives it, and they don't get like crucified, you know. Then the you know the other person might be a little more willing the next time or next time or two or whatever to like inch out there and take some time. But if you're in a large, like I know some treatment centers have large, large professionals groups, and it's easy to hide out in those, and so they don't they don't have to worry about it. They get caught on. They can say some fluff reason. They're not going to be confronted about it. They'll just kind of it'll it'll slide. Mm-hmm. So another example is I'll I'll ask for three topics in a big group, and there'll be silence because nobody wants to talk. Then eventually someone will claim a topic. And then I'll wait a while, and then the second person will proclaim a topic. And then finally we get to the third person, and when they claim their topic, I always start with the third person. Because mm. that's the one they really didn't want to talk about. Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> and then we, then we work our way backward, back to the other topics. But it always brings uh, issues in the group that people can relate to. And like what Rick said, it gives them a, a – uh, permission to eventually share that about themselves. If somebody else was able to do it, uh, then maybe I can risk that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's hard. Being in a group setting and sharing something about yourself authentically, vulnerably, mm-hmm. is powerful, but it's hard. We had a uh, f- professional from Kentucky who finally looked at, each, at, at the rest of the people in the group and said, you mean... All I have to do is feel powerlessness, powerlessness and helplessness to get this thing. And we said, absolutely. And how do you allow yourself to risk that level of intimacy with peers in a group setting, in a professional group setting, when it's all about ego and perfection and achievement? Last question. Um, I'm going to modify. I usually do the same question, um, but I'm going to modify it a little bit. Usually, it's what do you? What would you pass on to people listening? But since this is the professionals episode, what would you pass on to any professionals that may be listening or may come across this? I would say one thing would be if you want to get if you want to get helped with your disease, then our professionals program can help you with that. Um, And we can also facilitate you getting back to work. But our primary goal is for you to get sober and clean and have uh, hope and a life. That's our top priority. I don't know if I have any advice. Um, But I will say I've seen a lot of people from from different programs who've been to multiple programs around the Atlanta area. And I've seen them in groups. I'm in a, on a group with them Wednesday night. And it seems to me that as far as having the courage to share and be authentic, the people who come through MAR that are professionals um, tend to be a little more courageous in sharing. Um, a little more aware, I would say. And I think it's because of the groups. I think it's because maybe the community aspect as well. You get comfortable talking to people and talking about your feelings and being trying to share your truth and being courageous. And 
you're able to take that elsewhere. It was, it's one of the beneficial things about MAR to me is I was able to take that in groups throughout every aspect of my life. My work, my marriage, everything, it, it, it permeated through, through all of it. And I think more gives you a distinct advantage versus other places on being able to do that. I don't, those could be the reasons behind it that I listed, but it just it seems pretty apparent that that's true. Um, I always, I'm not trying to persuade people to go to more, but I am at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I just love more a lot. Save my life or help me. Thanks, Lane. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a group this week where a man, professional man in our professional program had just shared his life story. And he thought he was going to experience relief from it, but he didn't. It intensified his feelings, his resentment, his shame. And it surprised him because he thought it was going to have be a different experience. And my response to him was, that he had just experienced surrender by having those feelings and being able to share that struggle and to share his truth and not having to make those feelings go away. That's an example of experience and surrender. And so many of our professionals come in willing to be compliant, check the boxes to get back into their profession. But what we offer is an opportunity to experience surrender. And my belief is if you can experience surrender one or two or three times throughout the treatment experience, you can take that with you wherever you go. And that's different than just checking the boxes and doing what you think you're supposed to do to get things back. Well, thank you guys so much, Doug, Lane, Rick. I appreciate you guys coming by to do this, staying late. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Our show is co-produced by Angela Edmonds and our executive producer is David Tate. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.